0: Tonight, um, it's a short one, nice and short. So, uh, it is Proverbs 29, verse 11. Just one verse. It's a short one, but it hurts. Um, Here it is A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Alright, think about the last time that you can remember getting really angry or frustrated uh, at us about a situation, angry enough that you lashed out either at your spouse, your children, or at nothing at all, maybe an inanimate object, uh, even though no one heard you. Someone cut you off on Route 30 or 283, happens all the time, you burnt dinner while you're in a rush. Now you're hangry because you're hungry and angry, and that's never good for anyone. Your favorite team just lost the big game, or even worse, your favorite team just lost because of a bad call. (laughs) Now, when we think about this, it probably doesn't take us very long to think back to the last time that this happened. And in all honesty, it's probably a bit embarrassing to think about, and and we wouldn't want to tell everyone about this and when it happened. We're not going to brag about this. This proverb, along with others, address this, our responses to situations. It talks about our emotions, our feelings, our anger, and our reactions. Now, I don't have time to go into everything that I've learned this week about moods and emotions and feelings, um, and I'm I'm not even sure what all I remember because I've read a lot because I don't know that much about it, in all honesty. Um, But as I've studied for this message and as I've gotten older, I have learned one thing for sure. We are complex creatures, and there is a great deal of time that can go into discussion, and I plain and simple don't have it all figured out. (laughs) So we're just going to look at a couple pieces this evening. Um, And even definitions that are found in the world can be helpful, but often they don't align with what the Word of God says. So this was a great lesson for me. This week on learning to discern what is said or what I'm reading, uh, and if that lines up with Scripture. When you look at the Word of God, you don't find as many terms or maybe definitions as you do in, in science, and particularly psychology as we think of a topic like this. It takes work to think through these realities and the implications that follow. And I will be generalizing a bit tonight, just so it doesn't take all evening Uh, But from my study, I would say the terms such as emotions, feelings, moods, desires, etc. All these are linked to what the Bible would describe as our heart. um, The heart of mankind. So modern culture tends to think of the heart as the physical organ. Just that physical organ that pumps blood um, through our bodies. But the biblical usage is more spiritual. And it's often also more encompassing of our entire being. So we, we'll look at more at this in a bit, but I do want to look at the text now. So this Proverb contrasts two of the most of some of the most referenced characters in the book of Proverbs in one statement. The fool on one hand and the wise man on the other. And just to quickly review, three big characters that are mentioned in Proverbs are the fool, the simple, and the wise man. The fool is one who constantly opposes God and his covenants. He despises the wisdom and instruction of God. The simple is one who tries to claim neutrality, maybe. They, they aren't firmly committed in wisdom or in folly. We might call someone like that maybe lukewarm. Um, someone who might be trying to walk with one foot in the world and one foot with Christ. And that person is easily misled. The wise man, on the other hand, is one who fears God, embraces God's covenants, and learns from God's instruction. We heard again that the main point of Proverbs, from reading Proverbs 1, 1 1-7 in our call to worship, the Proverbs is about describing what wisdom is with a desire to help God's people become wise. So let's think about that a little bit more together. A simple and maybe straightforward reading of this verse, or maybe even an easier way that I was able to think of this, um, might translate to, the fool loses their temper easily, but a wise man is able to show self-control. A fool fool loses their temper easily, but the wise man is able to show self-control. It's as easy as that. We can go home now, right? Mm -hmm. Just don't lose your temper. Problem solved. But, If we're willing to look at this and let this soak in a little bit, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see ourselves as the fool here, can't we? Why is this? Why does this happen that we lose our tempers and let our emotions go? Why does it seem to be a common experience for human beings to have this issue? Why does it seem that to be human is to err in letting our emotions get the best of us? Well, say the simple answer must be because we are emotional beings. We were created by God with emotions and desires. Let's backtrack a bit. We know that mankind was originally created in the image and the likeness of God. Part of that likeness is having the capability for emotions and desires and to be able to feel. But because of the fall, because sin entered the world, that part of us, along with our whole being, has been corrupted. Before the fall, the heart of Adam and Eve lined up with the heart of God. They were driven by God-centered desires, a heart that sought God. After the fall, the heart of Adam and Eve became self-centered, and in turn, our hearts became self-centered, and we are self-centered from our birth. Think of it. Some of our first words that we learn as a kid are mine, and we continue the rest of our life to say, mine, mine. Maybe not always out loud, but we say it in our minds, in our hearts, and think of the verse in Jeremiah seventeen nineteen or seventeen nine that says, "The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it?" The heart, as defined biblically, is central to our being. Our intellect, our emotions, our souls—they're all closely related to our heart, as the Bible speaks of it. For us, maybe in the in the technological age, I guess, that we live in and that we're surrounded with, it's like the operating system on your computer or on your phone. When something's wrong with that operating system, everything else in that device is off, and the device won't function properly until that's taken care of. The sin nature that lingers in us causes us to not function as God originally designed us and can overwhelm us at times Leading to these outbursts. Now, we've seen how fallen human beings are described. We see that our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, our actions can err. But what about God? How is he described when we think about looking at this topic? When we look at his word, we see God himself as described with words portraying emotions and feelings. In fact, many of his attributes would be what we call communicable. Those that he shares with other beings, namely human beings. Many of these attributes are ones of the heart. Some examples would be how he is described as loving, merciful, jealous, peaceful, righteous, truthful, compassionate, and wise. Those attributes are also attributes that may also be used to describe human beings at times. The biggest difference, though when drawing the distinction between God and human beings with respect to emotion, is that God is unchangeable, and we are not. There's a $2 theological term, immutable, meaning simply that God cannot change. The immutability of God describes his unchanging nature. He can't change in his being, he can't change in his perfection, he can't change in his will, he can't change in his promises. He's unchanging from eternity past. If you look to chapter 2, 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, found on, in part on page 2 of the Reflections, uh, you see there is, but only, oops, sorry, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Now, I should have continued that statement because the very next word there is actually immutable. Um, It continues to describe God and his attributes. But James 1, verse verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In Malachi 3.6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, old children of Jacob, are not consumed. And these are two verses that the Westminster Confession references when speaking of the immutability or the unchanging character of God. And there are many more to underline this doctrine found in Scripture. Another theological term that's directly connected to and flows from God's immutability is something referred to as God's Impassibility. Uh, And I promise I'm not trying to confuse you with these words. I just learned a lot about these as I was studying. And I was like, these are really important terms that we should know. Maybe if we don't know the word itself, we should still know the concept and understand them. Um, So it's good to know what they are. And the more we hear them, the sooner they're going to sink in. And you may already know what this means. Uh, But just remember two words, immutable and impassable. Immutable means unchangeable. Impassible, to say that God is impassible means that God cannot suffer or be acted upon by another force. So nothing outside of God can change who he is. God is not reactive. Think of it this way. Newton's first law of motion. Who remembers that from middle school science class? Is that what it was? Probably. Um, It states that an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. Or vice versa and maybe even more applicable to our to this topic that an option or an object at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. So if there's a ball sitting right here, that ball, and it's sitting still, that ball will continue to sit still until it's acted upon by an outside force. Maybe Caleb comes up and kicks it, or Liam picks it up and throws it, or the wind blows it. That can't happen in here, but um, there is an outside force that's acting on it that's moving it. That illustration of Newton's first law kind of applies to our emotions because we are reactive. Our emotions and feelings are acted upon by outside forces. You came home from a long day at work where tasks are piling up and you're stressed out, and you find out that one of the kids got in trouble. Now you have to have a talk and think through disciplinary disciplinary options. How do you react? You might react in a way that's not very helpful because your stress levels are high and you're already annoyed with what's happening at work. Now, as a result of the fall, our pride often takes over and we're offended and act on selfish and self-seeking ambitions. And this is a picture of how our emotions often work. They ebb and they flow with how good or bad our day, our week, or our circumstances might look in the moment. This is not true of God. God's emotions are not reactive, like ours are. God's emotions are active. They are steady because he is never changing. He's immutable. And his emotions don't ebb and flow because they can't be acted upon by outside force. He's impassable. Good, this is good news for us. If they changed like ours do, if his emotions changed like ours do, he may love us less if we weren't following him closer. Or he may be more pleased with us one day or another if we prayed more. But this, his love towards us is based on his love for his son instead of our works or lack thereof. His affection for you does not increase because you've been to church four out of four weeks this, this month. It also doesn't decrease because you forgot to read your Bible today. He's steady and always acting on his promises and his plans that began long before any of us were ever born. Some of you may remember our Sunday school class a few years ago in the summer based on the verse from Numbers 23:19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We were talking about the promises of God and how they will come true because his character is perfect and unchanging. His promises and his affections aren't contingent on our actions, but rather they're revealed to us in his word, and they hinge on the love that the Father has for the Son. Something that may be a bit of a hang-up for us, myself included, at times, is that this proverb and the Bible does not teach us to be devoid of emotion. It doesn't teach us that emotions are bad, even though some of us may have been raised thinking that, even within the church. Think of the series that Troy and Colin just went through in, in the Psalms, and the depth of emotion that's written about there. This proverb and scripture, rather than seeing emotions as bad, it exhorts us to learn to control our emotions and our reactions. To learn how to show self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a mark of a believer that they would grow in this area. We learn to hold our emotions in check even when it's so hard to do so so that God may be glorified in our actions. By God's grace, we can grow in this area. And I don't know about you, but that is good news for me. And as wisdom takes root and shapes us, we can better learn to restrain ourselves. But how do we get this wisdom? And where do we look for this help? Do we look to culture? What does culture say? Follow your heart. Seems a little contradictory to what Jeremiah says. So... uh, the youth group is going through a video series right now called Road Trip to Truth. and the first session, they talked about what is truth, the question, what is truth? College students are interviewed all over different college campuses and asked what truth is. Is it absolute? Does it matter? Etc. And some of the answers that you hear are astounding, completely contradictory. So it does not at all seem wise to follow a culture's standard. Because no one actually knows what that standard is. No, obviously we are called to look to God's word as the revelation of truth, to God as the standard setter of truth, and Jesus Christ himself as the truth incarnate. The word made flesh. The point of Proverbs is to help God's people live lives growing in wisdom. The wise man looks to the counsel of God. The counsel of God is found in the pages of scripture and nowhere else. In it, we find the standards as well as practical ways to grow in wisdom. And here's three simple ways that we can do that, as uh, that we can learn to grow and change. First, we look to the Lord for guidance and help. Pray, pray, and pray. Ask Him for guidance. Ask Him for help in this area. He alone can change our hearts from those that follow foolish ways to those that follow His wisdom. Remember that Christ himself is also interceding for you at this very moment, praying for you. And through his spirit, we're recreated and shaped into his image. Secondly, and something that goes hand in hand with number one, is to study his word. Romans 12.2 states that we should not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How is our mind renewed? By studying God's word. His Spirit works through His Word to sharpen and change us from the inside out. And finally, we, should do, we would do well to surround ourselves with wise friends, to spend time in fellowship with other believers, to be held accountable to a local church and other believers as well. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. That sounds like pretty simple advice. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And if that's what we're seeking to do, we should do that. In God's design, wise people help us and shape us to become wise as well. Ultimately, we need to remember this. Paul told Timothy, continue in what he had learned and firmly believes, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you had been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The point of this proverb and Proverbs as a whole isn't just to get wisdom as the world sees wisdom. It isn't just to get wisdom so that we can be the wise old man sitting on the rocking chair on the front porch telling great stories. Although those guys are a lot of fun to be around. Um, It is to make you wise to the greatest story ever told. The story of the gospel, the truth about who Jesus Christ is, what he has done for you, how he continues to pray for you and how he will one day come again to take you home. When we understand the truth of the gospel and how Proverbs is pointing to this, when we look to Jesus for this wisdom, then we can be counted as one of those wise men. And in closing, something that struck me as I was thinking about that this week uh, was the story of the thieves on the cross along with Jesus, and we can see this proverb and so many other biblical truths play out in this picture and in this account. Here are two men; they're fools who they have broken both God's laws and society's laws to put them in this situ- this situation of being crucified. Now they're hanging on either side of Jesus as people are passing by mocking Jesus. Soldiers are casting lots for his clothes. The rulers of the Sanhedrin are mocking him telling him to come down off that cross. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that first, both at first, both these criminals are echoing those insults, acting as fools, venting their spirits at the very creator of the universe. They epitomize the fool in this verse and in Proverbs. And friends, how often do we fall in line with that fool here? But then, one of these fools has a change of heart. Luke 23:39 20, says one of the criminals who were hanged railed at railed at him Jesus saying are you not the Christ save yourself and us but the other rebuked him saying do you not fear god since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong Did you catch what that second criminal said do you not fear god what is the beginning of knowledge, according to Proverbs 1? It's the fear of the Lord. This thief saw Christ for who he was at that moment, and he responds as a wise man to the other thief who was responding as a fool. He points out the perfection of Jesus Christ, who didn't deserve to be there. He made he, he has made a new creation and responds in faith there on the cross. What's our response when we're convicted By a passage like this. Do we continue to respond. As the fool saying. Someone else needs to hear this more than I do. Or do we respond. As the second criminal did. The one who. When the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. To the truth in humility. And in the fear and the reverence of the Lord. He sees Christ. As the fulfillment. Of the wise man. Christ as the one. Whose heart fully lined up. With that of God's heart, he was never self-seeking. Do we respond as the one with a desire to be shaped into the image of the ultimate wise man found in Proverbs? So the next time we start to feel our pupils dilate or our heart rate speed up because we're about to react to a situation, think to yourself of this exhortation in Proverbs. I've done this often this week as I was preparing and ultimately reflected on how many times I play the fool and how good I am at it. But at the same time, I'm drawn to the goodness of God when looking to Christ as the ultimate wise man. The one who had every right to respond to these false charges and insults being hurled at him, but instead, like the lamb to the slaughter, opened not his mouth. The one who... For my foolishness bore the brunt of sin. The one who went to the cross for my foolishness. The one who's by his stripes were healed. And although he continue and although we and I continue to play the fool, he's begun to work a good work in us, and we'll see it through to completion. For our good, for our good and for his glory. Amen. And we can pray to that end. So let's pray now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths in a very dark world. Thank you for these great truths that you've given us to shape us. And thank you that Christ intercedes for us and the spirit works in us to shape us more into into your image. Would you guide and direct us more and more each day as we seek to grow in this discipline of self-control. Help us to seek first your kingdom, not our own as we, we react to situations that may be challenging. And we pray this through our risen savior and coming Christ. Jesus, our coming king, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for our uh, final hymn, In Christ Alone.